Welcome to the first 2023 outdoor podcast of the Bill Bradley Collective. We are shivering because we love our fans. Goddamn right. And um, the neighbors were quiet today, so nobody's going to know we're outside unless we tell them. No, there we, we there was a train. All right, we're going to have to edit in some neighbor noises. (laughs) The birds are not out. (laughs) No, the birds are not in in New England. How you doing, Zach? Uh, I'm doing doing well. I had a great afternoon before the podcast where I got to go uh, watch my alma mater, the roadie uh, Rams basketball team, uh, have a 14-point comeback in the last 10 minutes of the game to win. Uh, I bet on it before I got to Rhode Island, so I won money as well. Let's so. go, Rody! Let's go, Rody! Wait, but you did, bet did against you bet the, your team. Did you bet the money line? I bet the money line the Rody, that the Rams would win. Oh, oh all right, all right. I thought you were going to take, no, no. take the opposing to cover. I was it, like, it, he, he was doesn't he's telling us. You should have parlayed it. And I just have that you can't parlay those games. I've tried. <laughs> and I just want to uh, ask, ask Andrew this uh, sure. as a fellow college basketball fan. Mm. In the A-10, anyone can beat anyone. Anybody can beat anybody. Anybody can beat yeah. anybody. So no, they, no. That yeah, that, they, con- no that conference tournament is going to be fucking wild. It's pretty, uh, You see it all over college basketball, even at the top conferences. Like There's a lot of parity. Um, why, why can't Rhode Island get on a run here? Yeah. Why can't they string some wins together, well, get hot at the tournament? Why not? I don't see a reason why they can't get hot here. They'd be, they'd be like a 15 a seed, but I'd... There's, I'd still well, you got, I'd take you, the day off to watch the you game. Got, you got six weeks of conference play left, yeah. so put some wins together. So two, in, two in a row, baby. Let's so, go. So, Zach, which Simpson character said, if a cow ever had a chance, he'd eat you and everybody you care about? Troy McClure. <laughs> that is Troy McClure. With, uh, I thought that was an easy one. That's that, yes. <laughs> uh, that's with little Timmy at the <laughs> With little Timmy. Wait, and, Ra- and Ralph says, when I grow up, I want to go to Bovine Academy. <laughs> yes. One of my favorite jokes. Ra- Ralph. Ralph, a secretly uh, underrated character, one of the one of the best. So, what will you be ranting about? I'll be ranting about the firing of a D three women's coach and trying to stay on this side of toxically masculine. Yep. All right. Um, we'll see if you do it. Um, <laughs> Godspeed. I think it's going to be usually what Ed spoils. It tells it, you what they. I think it's going to be split. I think the men will agree with me, and our three female listeners will vehemently <laughs> disagree. I don't think the men agreed with you. Well, hey, I made a case. <laughs> Zach, play to the demo. I'll, I'll play play the demo. I will make yeah. a case. Play to the demo. Play to the demo. 18 to 49-year-old males. All right. So anyway, <laughs> how are you doing, Andrew? I'm good. Very good. No preambles today. Just straight. Let's get Let's go. All right. Only one Seattle Supersonic ever won the three-point shooting contest in All-Star Weekend. They were the first non-Larry Bird member to win it. And they are also the only University of Tennessee graduate. Well, graduates, probably stretching it. Alumni. To ever win it. Who was this person? Is he dead or alive? It's Dale Ellis. That's wrong. It oh. is Dale Ellis. It is Dale Ellis. Okay. You give me a... You know, in the dark, I see you. You made a face, and I was like, oh, fuck. "No, yeah." In, in the dark, all you can see oh, is no. all you can see is it's, the grave well, is Ed's, beard. Ted's upset because both of you answered his question. No, no, it, it's because no, because, I, because you kind of like the the question yeah. I was going to ask is he had the three he had the record for career three pointers until Reggie Miller passed him. But instead, I said Tennessee, and then I realized when I said Tennessee, he, he was went picking, to Tennessee. He was picking this one out. Yeah. He went to Tennessee. Oh, so that, yeah. Yeah, so I, I gave I gave you the easier of the two hints, although you probably would have gotten it anyway. Maybe not. Is he dead? I believe he's alive. I hope he's alive. Dale Ellis? He is alive. He's good. He's he's hey, a year older than I am. Let's go. So oh. and I'm barely alive, but still, I'm I'm, I'm here. He's kind he of didn't forgotten. Play like, he, basketball yeah, he was he was a good player. He was great. He was a great college player. Uh, like a almost probably averaged like close to three points a game. Was a, he, you know, he was a very good player. Yeah, in the NBA, for sure. Um. Pre-modern. Del Curry. Like he he was kind sure. of reminds me of Del Curry as a guy who was a three point shooter before anyone knew what, what the hell to do with him. Sure. So what will you be ranting about? So the the PGA Tour season is kind of off and running, and uh, as excited as I was for this week's uh, Farmers Insurance Open in uh, La Jolla, California, somehow the NFL still kind of finds a way to overshadow it. Um, and I'm gonna talk about <laughs> just kind of like how the the machinations of uh, televised sports in 2023. And I will be ranting about uh, the fact that the uh, NHL 
was able to put up with literally zero criticism of their attempts to diversify their employee base from being 99% white to being 97.8% white. But they couldn't deal with any pressure, so they just folded. The, the, uh, all the leagues suck. And what's our main topic? Oh, the triple B double C. The Bill Bradley Book Club Collective. As we talk about the, the books that people we think are, are, are loyal listeners would like to read in politics and sports, and we've even offered copies of them for trade. So with that, we'll be back with the Bill Bradley Collective. Driving into the crossroads of sports and politics, we are the Bill Bradley Collective. Here are your hosts, Ed, Zach, and Andrew. In the wake of the George Floyd, uh, Floyd shootings several years ago, many corporations stepped forward and said, you know, enough's enough. We are going to take a corporate stand on discrimination, on racism, on police brutality. And this weekend, was actually scheduled for next weekend, uh, next week, but this weekend we saw the NHL show exactly how much integrity these claims by any corporation has. So they had scheduled an event, National Hockey League scheduled an event called the Pathway to Hockey Summit. And it was scheduled for February 2nd during the uh, All-Star festivities. And it seeks to help, quote, diverse job seekers who are pursuing careers in hockey. And they tweeted out, participants must be 18 years of age or older based in the U.S. and identify as female, black, Asian Pacific Islander, Hispanic, Latino, indigenous, LBGTQA+, and or a person with a disability. Veterans are also welcomed and encouraged to attend. The Florida government leaped into action. Ron DeSantis' spokesperson, Brian Griffin, said, Discrimination of any sort is not welcome in the state of Florida, and we do not abide by the woke notion that discrimination should be overlooked if applied to po- in a politically popular manner or against a politically unpopular demographic. We are fighting all discrimination in our schools and our workplaces, and we will fight in publicly accessible places or meetings of meeting or activity. First of all, the idea that Florida is against all discrimination does not pass the laugh test. Their voting rights record is horrifying. Everything about that state is horrifying. And we live just with the comfort to know that everyone will be dead and under the sea in, in my lifetime. Um, but the NHL immediately pulled the tweet down and immediately changed it. Here's a newsflash. The NHL does have a problem with diversity. That their black players get screamed at and treated far differently than the white players. Not just by fans in opposing stadiums, but often by opposing players. That there is a huge problem with diversity in the NHL. And they took a tentative first step to address it. And the second there was a problem... They immediately back down to the powers that be, the people with money, the people with influence, the people who are in the governor's office. The NHL is not serious about creating a more diverse workforce. They are not serious about fighting discrimination, and neither is any other corporation that does it. And all of these corporations joined, jumped out when George Floyd was murdered, and we had another police murder just this week. And nobody's changed one bit of their behavior. It's more thoughts and prayers. Yeah, I mean, the NHL has to worry about perennial powerhouse Florida Panthers and how this uh, policy would be impacted by their home games in Florida and the 11 people that attend them. Um, It just, the word woke is like used now the way people used politically correct like five years ago when they'd be like, oh, I'm not politically correct. Now they say, I'm not woke. And it's like, Having empathy or just, like, believing people should be treated equally no matter what 
And they're like, well, that's that can't have that. That's the woke agenda. And it's like it, it reminds me when people say like the gay agenda. It's like you mean getting married? Yeah. Like that that was their agenda and they got it. Could, like, could, could you imagine looking at the NHL and saying, We're worried that they're discriminating against white people in the national hockey league? The NHL has a very serious problem both on ice and off ice of like the old school patriarchy. And you talk about like on ice where a lot of the old school guys that represent, you know, the front offices are very kind of like anti-analytics. They're very anti sort of, it's all eye test. It's all toughness. It's all about grit and this and that versus like a speed, finesse, scoring goals game. The goal in hockey is to score goals. That's how you win games. And the same thing has kind of, you know, fallen into off ice where you have, and in a lot of cases, it's it's sort of like young guys of Eastern European descent that aren't English speaking, but that have these old school values that they don't really know what they are, but that the people that employ them, like the coaches, GMs, owners of these teams that are all English speaking, they're all North American based, that they're the ones that should know better. And yet when those guys, when those players, if you want to talk about the case of uh, the Pride Night in Philly, where it's like, no, you should be kind of counseling these young guys that don't know better. They don't do that. They just, it's old school, it's traditionalist in the worst ways, and you're seeing it again. Like, the old school patriarchy exists in hockey almost, like, worse than, like, in any other sport. And it's both, you know, not so much, like, in a uh, toxic way on on ice, but off ice. It's just, it's bleeding, it's, it's, it's bled really bad. We used to think of hockey as being kind of, hockey wants to do the whole uh, inclusiveness thing. This is not, the NHL is not an inclusive network at all in any way so for my rant i'm gonna hope it's not toxically masculine i i asked my wife and she said uh it wasn't but she's also biased and hates women so (laughs) so we'll see uh my rant is about the division three university of mary harden baylor uh women's basketball team just fired their coach mark moorfield who had been there for about uh, been there for a long time because a video came out where he was screaming at uh, the his female players and using expletives, but, you know, screaming at them. And it, it was apparently after uh, one of their star players went up for a layup, got rolled under, and suffered a season-ending injury. Uh, and he then started screaming at his team that they were sloppy. Uh, didn't use any sexist or gender insults he didn't you know didn't call them a bitch didn't say the c word didn't do any of that stuff um he just screamed at them and he lost his job for this and i, I saw this a few days ago and i've been thinking about this i'm like you know growing up playing sports like i got yelled at all the time by coaches you know i got yelled at. i got taken aside when i screwed up you know and that was just my bitty basketball team that you coached you know it was like i don't remember yelling at anybody yeah, I was for the car ride home. <laughs> it, and, and that wasn't yelling. It was just deep sarcasm. Yeah. Constructive and, criticism. But, like, you know, I played up to high school athletics, um, and my coaches yelled at me all the time. They just screamed at me. You know, one of my coaches was a drunk who just swore at us all the time. Uh, it just kind of comes along with the territory. Like, coaches are psychopaths. You kind of understand that when you start playing for them is that, Coaches are psychotic. That's just what they are. To do that job, you have to be some level of insane because it just takes a lot out of you. And I don't understand why he got fired. You know, is it because he was yelling at female players? Like, you know, Bobby Knight screamed at his players all the time. He was never fired. He he was. He was fired, yeah, at the end. At the end. Because didn't he hit a kid? He did a number of uh, egregious offenses, but yeah, yeah. yeah. might not be yeah. the best example. But it just it just strikes me as one of those things of like, it's the, it just like everybody gets a ribbon crap, where it's just like, this guy is just a coach, he's yelling at his team because they screwed up, and he loses his job, and it's like, if these were men's, if these were male basketball players, would he have lost his job? Probably not. Sure. I, I can recall being 11, 12 years old, playing basketball and baseball as a young person. And like one kid would show up late to practice or whatever. And perhaps it was for like, a, in most cases, it was like a serious, like, hey, my mom couldn't get to work or my dad couldn't do this. And we we're late. And like every other kid had to like run laps and basically you do, you do laps around the field, you run uh, sprints and basketball, whatever for like, but it's also like for like no reason. 
I wonder if there's a way to go about being disciplined and holding your players accountable. I don't mind being... I never was. I, I often got yelled at as a youth, as a young athlete. And if you're a scholarship athlete, sure, you're gonna you're gonna get criticism. You're gonna get that. I don't think as long as it stays within like the kind of the lines where it never gets abusive. If, if it's not abusive, if you're not doing physical harm to your players, I mean, I think young people could use some some more sort of uh, you know aggressive like, hey, be better. At, yeah, again, at, at, at sports, again, don't cross the line. Doesn't seem well, like, from what I've heard, that this crossed the line. So, yeah, really. I'll show you the clip. So, He's just screaming so, at them. So first yeah. of all, did you say it was the University of Mary Hartman? Mary Harden Baylor. Where is oh, that? It is in Texas. Texas, Has I believe. To be. yeah. Oh, it's like a Baylor-like satellite yeah. school? D3, or? yeah. Is it a public school? I have no idea. So I would say this, and, and this is going to be an odd take for the oldest guy here. I think that the problem with coaching in America now is not that they're too unwilling to be assholes. Like, you know, I am much less upset that this guy lost his job because if, if the only way you can communicate is screaming at people who just saw a friend of theirs get hurt and out for the season and you, you decide this is the moment that I'm going to scream at you, um, that seems like pretty reprehensible behavior. I'm much more upset that Urban Myers got hired by Fox. Like that. Well, he the, beha- guy, the sure. behavior so of coach. Yeah, but the I mean, behavior of coaches across the board. It's okay that we've said, you know what? You're taking, in the words of Gary Gullman, you're taking an enjoyable pastime and turning it into a joyless prison. And I just think, you know what? Coaches should probably be held to a little bit of higher standard. I know Oriyama can be tough on his players. You don't see him screaming at people for prolonged periods of time. Well, you just don't see it. Maybe you see it with some basketball coaches, but those guys should be fired. Bobby Knight should have been fired. Um, uh, Woody Hayes should have been fired. They, Urban Meyer should have been fired. They crossed the line, yeah. But the line might be, don't scream at people who just saw their friend get badly injured. Don't do that. But it was their fault. Like, they well, rolled up I, under her. When, well, you know, like, well, I understand. So he's like he's looking at his star player going down caused by his her own teammate's mistakes. Oh, okay. You know what I'm guessing? You know who probably feels worst about that? Probably the girl who injured her. Yeah. My guess is that what that girl does not need, that player, that athlete does not need, is negative reinforcement. I just think it's like, at some point, these guys all act like I'm the coach, so I get to say whatever I want. I mean, it's this is the uh, oh, who's the, who's the guy that was just hired for? But he was be screaming and pushing the kid down the sidelines. Uh, oh, in high school, yeah. I mean, oh, uh, 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 Trent Dilfer, yeah. Um, like you don't have to be the biggest asshole in the world. Every second, you just don't have to be. I'm and, sure. And the fact that you you think that because you're coach, you have you've been given a pass, we should take that pass back. That's my take. You guys saw the clips of like the you see that it went viral and everybody in the NBA was commenting on it. it. Was like those it was like a third grade rec league game, and you've got these kids playing like again like third league rec basketball, and you've got the big third graders uh, backing down the small third graders, getting their basket up, getting it, and and going too small, too small. You see all these like taunts you see in the NBA all the time, and it's like they're doing these kids are like hitting perimeter shots and they're doing the old Quentin Richardson, Quentin Miles like doing that thing where they like yep. do the three D glasses to the forehead thing. These kids are like nine and ten. Uh, I don't. I, don't yeah. I, I feel like at that point, like coaches should be like, "Hey, man, like not yell, but just can we can we not can we be a little?" There have been there have been enough toxic coaches that have made it super hard for coaches that aren't toxic to sort of have discipline where we kind of have to recalibrate the line where you can be like, hey, what can, do, you, can you not be so sort of... What do coaches always say? We're teachers first. What? And you know who doesn't get away with that shit? Teachers. You start screaming at a kid, they fire you. And that's not right. And no, it, 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 it kind of is. Don't... Not scre- don't, like, like, screaming. Don't scream. Sure. Screaming is... At people... Sure. 
that you have authority over because that's bad. And so we've lost. I, I do feel like we've lost the line between what is like appropriate sort of like discipline versus like what's not. Yeah. And, I yeah. Don't, and I'm not saying that it's skewed the other way, but I. Yeah, there's got to be kind of a checks and balances. I don't know. It went downhill when everybody started getting a ribbon for finishing like ninth. I'll tell you what, it's man. Just I, a, yeah. It, it's, it, I don't <laughs> know. Like, hey, people don't get a ribbon for finishing ninth. And B, you know what? Life's. Life's fucking hard. Give somebody a ribbon. Like, no. if they want a ribbon, give them a ribbon. No. Because, like, it, life's hard. No, pay your income it's, taxes. <laughs> it's like when you come in second. It's like when you come in second at trivia and you get a box of nice gifts, and then somebody <laughs> from the first place team gives you the t shirt they got in their box. I don't want to speak from experience, and I'm not speaking from experience, or perhaps maybe I am. A few hours ago. A few hours ago. Yeah. Um, to conclude the rants today, you have, right now, we have a, a, the rare Saturday finish in the PGA Tour ongoing as we speak. It's at Tory Pines. The Farmers Insurance Open. It is golf's, uh, you know, once upon a time, this was the event where Tiger Woods would start his season. And to a lot, to most, it's like, all right, this is the official start of the season. Like, this is Tiger's first event. Here's where we start getting interested. And it's where CBS shows up. It's where network television coverage of the weekend shows up. And what CBS did last year uh, with this tournament was kind of unprecedented, where the fact that there's a Saturday finish. Let me ask you guys, like, why do you think this tournament is finishing on a Saturday versus... Tomorrow, Sunday. They, they don't because, want to compete against football. Yeah, because, because competing against football is insane. Yeah, right. they Fair. don't want. Yeah, they don't want to get. They don't want to do a point two in the ratings. Very good. Um, good on both. They of them. could do it early. R- uh, ribbons for both of you. For they that. could do. Er, they could ah. do it early. But it's in California. So it's in California. You'd be kicking off at like or California. You'd be kicking now, off at five a.m. What you have here is like so traditionally, and even this year, like Super Bowl weekend. That event has been held in Phoenix, and what happens is that Phoenix tournament on Sunday actually sees good numbers because people get fatigued by the elongated Super Bowl pregame show that starts at like noon, whatever. It's the three or four o'clock. It's like, oh, I just got with the game. Like what else is on TV? Around, oh, there's live sports on, here's the Phoenix Open. And it's, Phoenix Open's a fun tournament to watch. It's a raucous crowd. A lot of years, the Super Bowl's in Phoenix. A lot of years, like a lot of the pros that play in Phoenix, once they finish, they're getting on the fucking private jet and going to Glendale to go to the Super Bowl, which I'm sure is going to happen this year for sure. Um, but here, it's like, now you have CBS that has coverage of the AFC title game tomorrow night at 6.40 kickoff between the uh, Chiefs and Bengals, which will be undoubtedly the second most watched thing in this country in 2023 because look at 2022 where 75 of the most, the 100 most watched tele- telecasts in this country last year, sports, pol- debates, politics, uh, entertainment, reality, whatever, 75 of them were NFL and that Chiefs-Bengals game tomorrow night on CBS is going to be that. What CBS wants to avoid tomorrow by putting up that Farmers Insurance Open from the, in that 3-6 to six window is like they don't want to go up against that Niners-Eagles game, which is going to be the third most watched telecast in the entire country for the year 2023. I'm much more excited about that game. Really? I love both games. I'm, exci- I'm, I'm more excited for that one, too, but I, I'm, I think people are kind of overstating like uh, Mahomes' injury. We'll talk about it off-air, I'm sure. Yeah. The point is... This is kind of a new thing. The NFL, as a ratings behemoth, as like the NFL, you're going to find it tomorrow. And the golf is not, it's like Super Bowl Sunday too. Nobody's, no sports, college sports, NBA, NHL, like on Super Bowl Sunday tomorrow, like nobody's got shit going on after like four o'clock because the NFL's king. 50 million people, 60 million people are going to watch either both of these, of these conference title games. The fact that golf, that on Super Bowl Sunday happens to be kind of like the appetizer for a lot of people. They actually do a good number because people get, again, they're done with the puff pieces on the pregame. Like, ugh, what the fuck else is on within three channels? It's like, oh, one channel up. It's like, oh, there's CBS. There's the Phoenix Open. Live golf, whatever. Zach, remember the Niners Chiefs a few years ago? I came over here. We were watching Brandon, you were in Miami. And we were like, I'm like, dude, we got to watch. Phoenix this year, my friend. Right. I'm yeah, like, we're Zach, watching. we got to watch fucking Tony Fee now. Kind of close out this uh, Phoenix Open. And like, well, this uh, game's about to begin. It's going to playoff. Like, let's watch Fino. And Fino lost. And I was pissed. But whatever. We had a good I, night. I would have watched. <laughs> I would watch security camera footage of my mother in a coma before I watched the pregame show for a second, for, for 15 minutes. And yet somehow like 30 million people like watch that shit. I know. It's I know insane. What you're um, well, they just have it on while they're cooking food. I mean, the, six hours in a room with Terry Bradshaw. Sweet God. The point is like the NFL rules everything around <laughs> the, us. And that is here to stay and it's not going anywhere.
Did you see the uh, SNL skit of the Fox Cold Open? <laughs> no, I have to. Where they it. had the uh, they had the non-binary cast member play <laughs> Terry Bradshaw, and I just thought that that would piss him off. So one, he'd be confused by it because he'd be like, I, he doesn't know what non-binary means. But he doesn't know what non-bot or bi means. It's, ti- it's ver- time to get Terry Bradshaw and Jimmy Johnson off that pre-show. Also, I don't think either. I don't think they know where they are. The Bradshaw. I, the, Bradshaw. Bradshaw's an all-time top ten quarterback. Sure. The Brad but he's Charles. an old man. He's not a very good yeah, college. No, no he's, he was never good. He he was known for being dumb. That was his thing. He's too dumb to be a quarterback in the NFL. In the seventies, when you handed off to Franco Harris and Rocky Boyer. What but, about John Stallworth and Yeah, But it is. Yeah, I think it is like. I have not gotten into watching. I'm I'm peak basketball college basketball sure. season right sure. now, so I've it's that in football. You're waiting for the Masters, the I'm players. Wait, I'm waiting yeah. for sure. like the first real tournament, and then I'll that that's when I'll kick into golf. But it is like that. I remember last last year or two years ago. I think it was oh, it was pre-COVID. So it was Jesus like four years ago. We were, I was like, we gotta watch, we gotta watch yeah, Fina before we go this. to the Super Bowl. We gotta watch, you, this. yeah, we. Just, we <laughs> Watched the whole thing. And it, was I, good, I, it was a good appetizer for yeah, the Super Bowl. I got, yeah, I got like, I got into it. I got me hyped up to watch sports. And then, you know, we just bummed around the town watching the Super Bowl. But yeah. it was a good appetizer. And I think, like, good. The more eyes on golf, the better. They shouldn't compete with, they should not compete with the NFL ever. Um, they would not. No one should. They no would one not. Should. No, no, no one can. No one no, can. Yeah. Um, so I mentioned golf. And this is kind of, uh, you know, around the bend. But after the break... And one of the books that I'm going to talk about uh, does pertain to golf, but the main topic for today's uh, conversation is our favorite sports politics books. The Bill we're, Bradley, we're gonna, the Bill Bradley for sure. book club collective. It's like yeah. Oprah, Winf- we'll Oprah, Oprah, Oprah Winfrey yeah. eats your heart out. Triple like, B, this is double the, C. The, the Bill extra, Bradley Collective Book Club. The extra is, B is uh, for bring your own book. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the BBC BC is coming to you after the break. Today, there's a beer for everyone. Hey, me and the guys are going out for beer. You want to come along? Nah, I got a lot of data to enter into the computer tonight. Now, there's a brew for the future. Want me to bring you something back? Thanks, but I got some right here. Microsoft Brew. You got a beer tap on your computer? With a head so thick, you can float a mouse on it. Let me get this straight. You make your own beer with the computer? With the right software, you can do anything. Microsoft Brew. Here, I call this one Windows 95. I don't know. It leaves a bad taste in my mouth. And if you got to get there quicker, try the new ISDN malt liquor. So welcome back. So we talked about we've we have not built the Bill Bradley Collective Presidential Library yet. Or, we're we're going to be like Obama yeah. and uh, bulldoze a park, <laughs> or it'll be Trump and just put it in our bathroom. But um, anyway, so I'm going to start. These are just books about politics and sports that mean a lot to us, and I've got one that kind of straddles it. I'm going to start with the book that I think is the most influential sports book ever written, and that's the Bill James Baseball Historical Abstract. I learned, I, I, re- I had read the Baseball Abstract multiple years. My sister got it for me in 1981 the first uh, as a birthday gift, the first year it was ever mass-produced. Um, and then I got the first version of this in the late 80s and then the second version and I, I wish he would do an updated version but I, I don't think he will um, it it combines I think a really good writing um, I think it combines really thoughtful analytics and really thoughtful arguments that sometimes I think he's completely wrong on but the thing that gets me is for a guy who's older than I am the book ages really well uh he hasn't he did not find the need to stop every four seconds and put frat boy humor in in the footnotes um like a certain podcast (laughs) generator that we know did i assume you've read it andrew Uh, zach it's you grew up with it i grew up with it yeah um I mean, it's incredibly personal to me. I own the last, the last version he did was after the 2001 season, and I own that in paperback. And for like Teenage Andrew, yeah. somebody that's obsessed with like history and stats, whatever, like it, it, it was kind of like it was, it was, it was life changing in a way. And how I looked at it combines, sure, like narrative things, but with 
all entrenched in numbers and in data and in like reality. James is a is a fabulously talented writer. I remember taking out another James book, the the Cooperstown, the case for I forget what it was called, the politics of glory. The politics of glory, yeah, man, it's so good. It's really that great. Was so good. Um, the the thirty five page Phil Rizzuto, um, sure. Vern Stevenson breakdown versus and Bobby Door and, and, right, yeah. and the Bill Dickey sure. uh, uh, Yogi Berra breakdowns are just insanely good. It's really, I think Bill James is the beginning to me of of the pushback to conventional. I test wisdom versus something steeped in in that, but also with a quantitative, analytic based observation. And James James like t- walks that line of like, he's a great writer. And this is also steeped in like actual numbers and stats and proof. You know, I um, mean, huge fan. Wins huge above fan. replacement is a him statistic. Like all oh, of these sure. statistics, like, and he did them longhand. No doubt. Uh, for mine, I'm gonna go with a book that I read during COVID, actually. The book is called Detroit. It's by beat writer Charlie LaDuff, and it traces the roots of Detroit in a post-auto industry world and what it's like for the residents in the city. It is a grim and gritty depiction of what it's like to live in Detroit, what these people have gone through, what it's like in the neighborhoods where all of a sudden the jobs weren't there anymore and they're kind of abandoned. Um, the rise in private gun ownership because of a lack of a police force. It is very thoughtful. It is very, you know, it's reality. So it's of course depressing, especially when you think about what a great city Detroit was, what a giant the auto industry was to that, what a giant the unions were to them. And now it is basically... You know, it went from what three million people to like three hundred thousand. Like, it's around eight hundred thousand. Yeah, yeah. It, like it, it's just it is an unsustainable city, and it is, you know, it could be the canary in the coal mine for other major American cities that are dependent on one industry. You know, when I was reading and I thought about you know New London when Pfizer left and all the for sale signs that went up, and now we're just dependent on EB and the sub base. And if that sub base ever closes, the death of New London. And if EB goes away, we're going to have mass unemployment. And all of a sudden, we're going to be a city that can't pay its bills. It strikes me as uh, a book that, you know, if you're interested in that kind of thing, you know, you should read. It's it's well worth it. I've, I've been to Detroit uh, for a convention. I fell in love with the city. I will definitely get that book. That, I mean, I think the reason we do this is so that, our listeners and the three of us just pick up more books to read. Uh, sure. But I, I would, I definitely want to to read that Detroit, who, which by the way is a city that sits on the intersection of sports and politics. Because one of the great athletes who ever played in Detroit became their mayor, Dave Bing, yeah, and was a good mayor in an impossible situation. Yeah, there are areas of of, of Detroit now that they the gov- the city cannot afford. To address, yeah, they don't have trash pickup. They don't have cops. They're, they're, they don't have fire. They don't have anything. They don't, yeah. yeah, like yeah, in it, the book, you, you you live. It is the new prairie. Yeah, in the book, they, it talks about um, a home. Uh, one of the people he was interviewing, their home goes up in flames. Called the fire department. And the fire department just didn't answer. Like that's just the reality of living in Detroit right now, and it's uh, it's fascinating. I I have also been to Detroit for for work, and I absolutely loved it. It was everything I'd want in a city. It was gritty and dangerous. And there is no city where the sports teams are more important. I really believe that. that. Is, yeah. Like the, that there's the, the thing that holds that city together are the Tigers, the Pistons, the Red Wings, and the Lions. Not in that order. It's the Red Wings one. But I mean, yeah. I think that, that that's what holds that city, and the Pistons do that. That's what holds that city together for sports teams. Sure. My all-time favorite sports book, and I'm not—I'm almost kind of embarrassed to say it because of the aforementioned, not named uh, guy that Ed was alluding to. Bill Simmons also cites it as his all-time favorite sports book. Maybe me for different reasons. It's, it's the Breaks of the Game by David Halberstam. It's so good. Um, it's a book that came out in 1982, 1983. Um, that kind of documents—it's—it's it's an in-season documentation of the 1981-82 Portland Trailblazers, with a real look back to the 76-77 Trailblazers that um, we're, not, we're NBA champions, we're a dominant team, we're a team on the rise. Young Bill Walton, Maurice Lucas, uh, Lionel Hollins, like kind of like this pre-modern big three. 
Um, this team was kind of set up to kind of dominate a, an era of NBA basketball post merger that had no real had no real kind of king king team. Um, but what happens the next year in 77, 78 is that Bill Walton goes down and Bill Walton basically is ever the same again. And neither are the Trailblazers. Um, what the book is, it, the book is an exploration of the persons, the people. It's an exploration of, of Walton and Hollins and uh, Lucas and everybody else on that team. Jack Ramsey, the coach, uh, the front office, and also the NBA at large in this time where this is a very this is before the NBA hits you know pre it's a pre Magic Bird you know the NBA post merger seventy six in between Bird and uh, Magic Johnson and pretty much like let's say eighty one eighty two eighty three them kind of taking the reins and the NBA becoming this sort of like a a a television property a Ma- Madison Avenue property um, that starts to rival baseball NFL is already taken over and baseball's on the decline and basketball is like on the on the upswing. And this book captures the NBA and basketball um, at a very curious time. A lot of the contemporary pushback to this book is kind of the language that Halberstam and Halberstam is traditionally a he's not a sports journalist. He's a he's a he's basically he's a he's a news journalist. He wrote books that uh, the fifties, the best and the brightest. I mean, I, I remember reading the fifties uh, during a summer, the summer between my sophomore and junior high school for AP U.S. history, and I was kind of like, man. I don't. A lot of this shit's dry, but Halberstam is really making this a lot more interesting than it than it should be, you know. And what he does to breaks the game is, and again, some of the way he talks about, and again, it's a largely black league. And I think the pushback contemporarily is that he doesn't necessarily talk about them as humans in in, in a language sense, but he does kind of relate their human experience. Whether the language is there or not, I, I think is up for debate, and I would actually agree with some criticism of it in, in the contemporary. Um, but if you want to, if you want to look into a very interesting, a very impactful, um, really like basically before the NBA explodes into the NBA that we know it as today, this is this is the catalog, this is the journal, um, the per, the people, the personalities, and, and the pros. It's um, it's really pretty great. That, so, recommend, that recommendation is going to go over really well with a super fan uh, of the pod and the Trailblazers, Jason Theobar. Yeah. The um, uh, I feel I feel like uh, now if he hasn't read it, he's got to pick it up now. We're going to have to listen to him Blazers, talk to us about the 1981. I will take the bullet for, for you guys. The, the first <laughs> the first gift that Zach ever picked out on his own for me was the best and the brightest mm-hmm. by Howerstam, sure. which is. Nearly made my list of books we have to read. Um, he's written other sports books. He wrote some yeah. books. Uh, he wrote some books about. He wrote a book about the 1965 World Series. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that's Yankees the Cardinals wrote a book. He right, wrote a, he wrote a Yankees, Cardinal World Series. He wrote a Jordan book too, where Jordan did right. not give him any access. Right, and he still uh, wrote a great book about Jordan somehow without he's getting access. A tremendous writer uh, and a huge figure in American journalism. And, and so, since you talked about. Somebody who uh, wrote a book about Kennedy's inner circle, uh, the best and the brightest. I'm going to mention a book written by somebody who was in Kennedy's inner circle, Theodore White. I have read the 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 most important event of my lifetime as a citizen, not as a father, not as a husband, but as a citizen, is Watergate. That. Uh, I was obsessed by it. Uh, the fact that Lowell Weicker from Connecticut was on the committee meant the world to me. I was 11 years old. I started riding my, my bike to school so I could just take off and get home super fast. I would watch the Watergate hearings, and then I would watch the part I missed and replay. Um, because it's like, holy God, this works. It doesn't work anymore, but at the time it worked. And I've read 40 Watergate books. 45 Watergate books. Um, Breach of Faith by Theodore White is by far the best. It is thoughtful. He maintains an argument through the entire book um, that is unforgiving of Nixon, but also understanding that Watergate does not undo everything Nixon did, but it undoes does a lot of what Nixon did. Um, if you have any interest in Watergate at all, and you probably don't, because why would you? It's a 50-year-old scandal. Um, 
but the 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 single best book about that time period, what the White House was like, what politics were like at that time, when the first person to call for Nixon's impeachment was a Republican, not a Democrat. It was Barry Goldwater. He said, Dick Nixon's been a liar his entire goddamn life, and he's a liar now. And um, so I, I just, uh, that, that's a book that if you, if you, it's probably super hard to find, but just, you know, just send me a, a direct message. I'll send it to you. Uh, people who are listening are going to think we planned this out, although... Most of the time when we're planning out our main topic, we just go, I don't know, we'll just get into it when we get into it. <laughs> not, not much planning. Yeah, no, yeah, we just kind of grunting, ah, we'll just figure it out. Um, we plan individually, just not together. Sure. Yeah, yeah, we each have our own individual ideas. Uh, we're like the late Beatles. Right. Um, <laughs> sure. <laughs> Al- Alicia is our Yoko owner. Yeah, Alicia's the Yoko. Um I called George, by the way. <laughs> Brandon Dringo, the one who just heaps everything together and nobody really knows. No, what no, he's no. Doing he's there. George Martin. George George Harrison. He's the super no, George producer. Martin's I'm George Harrison. Produ- he's George, George Martin. Martin's a producer. Yeah. No, George R. R. Martin wrote No. George Martin was the producer the of the of, all, of yeah. every Beatles. Not R. R. George Martin. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, I'll take that title. But it was Thank a, you. Yeah. It was a nice lead in to right. what my next book is gonna be, because you mentioned uh you mentioned him. Which is Maverick, a biography of Lowell Waker. Uh, I read this book a little bit ago. It is a very quick read. It's not terribly long, but it really dives into what went into the Watergate hearings, what um, what it was like to gather that information, what it was like doing the committee work, what they what he had to go through. Uh, but also, you know, Lowell Waker was not just. Watergate, like that wasn't just what he did. He was also uh, really big into oceanography. Uh, he was critical in, start, in helping NOAA. Um, great governor. Um, he was a great senator. Uh, my my goal is to hopefully one day meet him and have him sign the book. Uh, he's getting up there. He lives in Old Saybrook. You, you uh, might want to hurry that along. Yeah, I'm try- I, I've got I've got an in. I, I'm just trying to plan the date, but I've got an in. Uh, I feel like you knock doors a lot. You just need to get in his district. I just, yeah, I just got to go knock doors. Go My guess is he doesn't answer his own door. No, he probably. Yeah, but if you know what you're doing when you walk up to the door, you can be like, hey. But it, but uh, yeah, it's it's hard to find biographies about like Connecticut governors because nobody really cares about Connecticut governors. Um, <laughs> or Connecticut. Or Connecticut. Yeah, or, Tom Meskell did not write yeah. a, a riveting biography. Yeah, there's no Tip O'Neill. Uh, oh, not Tip O'Neill. Bob O'Neill biography forthcoming. Nobody in Iowa is waiting for the results of the Connecticut primaries. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but they should be. They should. <laughs> We're a harbinger. Uh, but please, if, you, if you're if you interested in it, it's well worth it. Uh, Lowell Waker, a maverick. Uh, just really good look at his life and his service uh, in Congress and as governor. Um, tells a great story about people swearing at him when he passed the income tax. The reason we have the income tax is because of Lowell Waker. It literally saved our state from bankruptcy. Um, even yeah. though everyone hates the income tax, just pay your fucking taxes. Um, yeah, no, what we should have is instead a 30% national sales yeah. tax. That's that's the plan. Um. <laughs> No, Weicker, first time I ever saw Weicker is he gave the um, the the big speech when my dad graduated from college uh, at from Bridgeport Engineering Institute uh, in 72 when he ran. So it was very exciting for me to see him. I remember I remember watching him and really liking him at 10 because I was weird. So <clears throat> John Feinstein is a very prolific writer of sports books. Um, some, a, a lot, in my estimation, very mediocre. A couple really great, like A Season on the Brink, the, the tale of the Bobby Knight Indiana basketball team of 85-86. Really, really, really good book. He also wrote a book called A Good Walk Spoiled, Days and Nights in the PGA Tour. That kind of documented the 93-94 PGA Tour season, um, which is like a favorite of mine, but not the one I want to talk about here. The kind of uh, spiritual successor to that Feinstein book, A Good Walk Spoiled, is Shane Ryan's Slaying the Tiger, which Shane Ryan uh, was a long, was, is still is a writer for Golf Digest, for GQ, for was like a contributor at Grantland, um, wrote a book about uh, the PGA Tour in 2013 and 14 called Slaying the Tiger. And obviously the kind of 
slaying the tiger. Obviously, Tiger Woods is the tiger. Uh, about to turn 40, the tour at the time is kind of turning over a new leaf. It's, it's new stars. Um, Shane Ryan indoctrinates himself into the tour, gets full access. It's especially interesting now seeing what's coming next month where Netflix was embedded with the tour for 2022. Ryan was embedded for the tour in 13 and 14. Describes many of, uh, and a lot of these guys haven't aged so well in the last 10 years. I mean, I said Ricky Fowler is one, but he's also talking very much and very eloquently and, and positively about one like Roy McIlroy. He also talks very negatively about one Patrick Reed, who I feel like has gotten kind of lost in all of these like discussions we've had about live golf and how like the apex villain of live golf might just be Patrick Reed. And 10 years ago, when Patrick Reed first broke on tour, Shane Ryan had all the fucking dirt on this dude. All of the cheating at college that, that ran him out of the University of Georgia, where he was the top, the top kludgy golfer in the world, top amateur golfer in the world. But Georgia, guess what? He's stealing from his teammates. He's cheating on the course. They run him out. They run him out. He goes to uh, a small school, Augusta State in Georgia, and he wins a national title, does all this, but he's doing it at small school uh, with very little visibility. Um, Shane Ryan's a very talented writer. I still read him to this day. I follow him on Twitter. I engage with him on Twitter a little bit. Um, great writer. This book is, if you want that sort of modern, what you're going to see on Netflix like this year, like video-wise, um, what Shane Ryan gives you in, in, in the context of 2014 is what you'll see on Netflix next month if you want to watch that show um, about the tour. Um, a lot of dirt, a lot of, a lot of good juicy shit, but a lot of vetted, well vetted, well reported. Um, it's really a fun read if you want to kind of contextualize um, the world of golf, and it's kind of fun to see how these people have aged like perfectly in the way they're presented in this book that came out in 2014. Slaying the Tiger, Shane Ryan. So I'm going to go with a classic that's it's still in print. Uh, you can find it, Terry Pluto's. Loose balls. Fuck yeah! <laughs> the history, uh, oral history of the ABA. It's it's one of the first oral histories, and it's amazing. It is the American Basketball Association was completely out of its mind at a time when a lot of people were out of their minds, and it it features like twenty three year old Bob Costas just telling the most amazing anecdotes in the most amazing way humanly possible. I remember the ABA um, back in 1973. I could get four channels, uh, three channels downstairs, one channel upstairs, and the channel I could get upstairs was channel nine, and they had a, they had the Nets games. So I got to watch the Larry Keenan, Billy Paltz, Julius Irving, actually the Julius Irving, Larry Keenan, Billy Paltz, Super John Williamson, Brian Taylor, Nets, that was an incredible team, and uh, I got to watch those teams. I got to watch the Spirits of St. Louis. I got to watch all of these crazy teams, and it's the most fun read, I think, of any book I've ever read. It's just so much fun to read that book. I happen to own a well-kept copy of that book in paper, paperback. If anybody wants to borrow it, please, uh, at me. Come at me. It's great. Uh, just a great read, fun read, everything Ed said stamped so for my book uh, i'm gonna be be quick on this because we did an entire episode about it uh for my sports book the catcher was a spy the mysterious life of moberg <laughs> for those who want to learn more about him uh you can watch the movie which stars paul rudd you can listen to this podcast that uh, episode about him or you can read the book uh, i suggest all three because we've got to eat too on that our episode number will be in the description of this episode. Yes, it is. You got it, dog. Yeah, Andrew <laughs> got Andrew's got homework. You got it. But it's it's just a great book about like this kind of journeyman catcher who was incredibly smart. Traveled to Japan a couple of times for baseball. Picked up the language. Filmed uh, the industrialized Japan, which was like his first uh, act of spycraft. Would be my guess. Uh, and then during World War II, worked as a spy. And it's just um, weird and fascinating and unbelievable uh, that it's a biography and not fiction because uh, I am not sure somebody could write this up in a fictional way and have it still sound this believable. Uh, it's just incredible. The Catcher Was a Spy. I have the book as well. If anyone wants to borrow it, by all means, uh, I'd be happy to give it out to you. And, and by the way, I learned that story in the Bill James Baseball Abstract. 
That's how I learned about Mo Bird. Everything's coming full circle yeah, this episode. It's, just, it's a full you, circle. You and I, we're, we're firing on all gears yes, tonight. That's right. So in between his tenure as a uh, cast member and head writer on, S- on Saturday Night Live and as a senator from the state of Minnesota, Al Franken uh, wrote a couple of books. And one of those <laughs> books is one that I was lent uh, by a friend, I believe like my freshman year of high school, maybe sophomore year. It was called Lies and the Lying Liars That Tell Them. And what this is, is pretty much something that is aged like a fine wine, like a fine cheese. Um, it is a very well-fitted, very well put together. I, I call, I'll call it a hatchet job almost as a, as a compliment. And that it just, the Bill O'Reilly's and the Rush Limbaugh, like the kind of the pre-modern, the pre-Tucker Carlson, the pre-Sean Hannity, the guys that were doing that that schlock on cable TV to less fanfare, um, Al Franken takes the fight to them. And he writes this whole book where he just fucking hammers and this is a guy bill o'reilly at the time that's the o'reilly factor the no spin zone all this bullshit that gave rise to like the fox news primetime shock shock the laura ingram hannity on down the line um and franken obviously like kind of ingloriously left the senate seat uh i mean he the standards for democratic senators seem to be much higher than those for other sitting republicans but um uh, al franken's a very funny man a very talented man a very politically savvy man and he wrote some really great books on politics and uh, lies and the lying liars that tell them. Uh, I highly recommend. What, what was that skit he did on SNL? And he's like, "You're good enough." Stuart Smiley. Stuart Smiley, for sure. That was a, a that's that's a classic. And the best a, one is the one with uh, Michael uh, Jordan. Michael Jordan yeah. or or Muggsy Bogues and Bar- uh, Charles Barkley. Those two. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I I I, I read that book. Um, Fox News sued him, I think, on that book. Absolutely, Definition. and they lost yeah. and and um, libel. And they said the case was utterly without merit, and uh, he's just posting like transcripts from their right, shows. Right, right. He's just <laughs> posting transcripts <laughs> from the show. Uh, my opinion about, I thought Al Franken should resign in the moment, and now I think he should not have, and, and I was wrong about that. Uh, real quick, uh, I had two books: Outlaw League, which is a um, book about the Federal League that I've referenced on this podcast before by Daniel Levette. Wait, I thought we were done. Yep, I'm going to just stop that right now. And in and, and the Outdoor League is something that everyone should read. But I hope you enjoyed this. Uh, we will build a Bill Bradley Collective Library and a Bill Bradley Collective. And it sounds like Ed's already got a couple on the list. Hall of Fame. Sure. And we're going to do those things, and we're going to just build them in, in Zach's backyard, where we're sitting right now. And with that, we'll see you next week on the Bill Bradley Collective. As always, we thank you for joining us here. And if you like today's episode, smash that subscribe button. Leave us a review. Let's help grow the collective brand. We'll see you all next week on the Bill Bradley Collective.